Hello and welcome to the Editor's Podcast for the February 2023 edition of Practical Neurology. And we're the two editors, Phil Smith and Garrett Fuller. And we've got here another 100 pages packed full with practical wisdom, which comes from across the spectrum of neurology. Um, Garrett, so we don't have themed issues at Practical Neurology, but we did think the theme of this one was perhaps that of uncertainty. Any thoughts on that? It is interesting. We don't really have themes, but very often when we're putting together the uh, contents of the issue, a theme will emerge. And uh, on this occasion, I think uncertainty is has emerged as a theme, but uncertainty in different ways for different articles. And I, I think perhaps we'll comment on that as we go through. I mean, we're starting off with a really, really practical and useful article about idiopathic normal pressure hydrocephalus, a uh, historical context and a contemporary guide from Christopher Carswell. And Chris gave an excellent talk at the ABN where he went through this, and, and obviously that's what prompted us to commission him to write this article. And it's it seems like an odd title to have for um, a practical paper, the historical context. But actually, I think it's really important because uh, understanding that the original descriptions by uh, Hakim and Adams were based on observations in patients who had pneumoencephalography. So this is where the CSF is drained and replaced by fluid. Before we had scanning, it was uh, the way in which you could actually assess and measure the uh, structure of the ventricular system. And what they noticed is that some of the patients they did this to, particularly those who had a gait disturbance, cognitive disturbance, and, and, and bladder uh, disturbance, what's known as Hakim's triad, a lot of those patients, well, not a lot, some of those patients seem to respond. And uh, that's really been the starting point and the brick on which uh, the, the whole uh, edifice of normal pressure hydrocephalus has been built. And I think understanding that as the starting point is quite helpful because what's actually happened is we everyone's been aware that there's this, this group of patients who respond to shunting. So we have a group of patients with um, these characteristic changes, uh, this slightly odd gait, externally uh, rotated feet, small steps, uh, good arm swing, and a subcortical cognitive deficit. Very often, these patients will respond to shunting. So the question is, can we identify who those patients are? Because we don't really have very many reversible um, treatments or reversible uh, causes for dementia and cognitive disturbance. And it's really been fraught with difficulty because we've been lacking decent trials, um, the, the case series. Um, it's very hard to have a sham uh, study of these patients. And equally, it's very hard to define who the patients are because the scan changes seem relatively nonspecific. They, they, they introduce a series of scales that we use to try and understand which which scans are most likely to predict uh, a good response to shunting. But considering the history allows you to see the way in which the problems arise in treating these patients. Um, I mean, I was astonished, and I, I'm interested in your thoughts. I mean, 6% of patients, elderly patients, have changes that would give them a diagnosis of possible NPH. And, and yeah. I think 6% is just a huge proportion. Well, this, this is the problem, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's one of those conditions that people think they know because it's heralded as a treatable cause of dementia. A bit like things like B12 and thyroid and uh, syphilis are always tested for people with dementia. Then this is one of those conditions that people think they know. And we do get referrals 
at least we get notification from from neuroradiologists saying that this could be normal pressure hydrocephalus. And then we're left with the problem of knowing whether to put people through actually what is quite a rigorous test in order to see whether they'd be suitable for, for surgical intervention. And, and I think the, he, he highlights the difficulties with what is a suitable test. And you know, there's a CSF drainage test, which has some predictive value, but it's remarkably poor. I mean, a significant proportion of patients respond to shunting who are negative. Um, if you respond to the CSF drainage uh, test, you've got a reasonable chance of responding. And I think the other underlying problem here is a failure to completely understand the cause of all of this, you know, what exactly is the underlying process that you're, rever- you're, you're reversing? And I think the uncertainty and the uncertainty that sort of resonates through this is the uncertainty of the definition of the condition, then the uncertainty as to how to make the diagnosis, and then the uncertainty as to, uh, you know, how best to manage it. And, and I think Chris has come up with a really nice series of um, well, a nice algorithm as to how to approach this. You know, if people haven't got symptoms, then don't bother treating them. Uh, if they have got symptoms and they've got scans which are suggestive, then look really, really hard for alternative diagnosis. A very high proportion of patients end up with having an alternative diagnosis. And they've got some very nice case vignettes of patients who turned out to have PSP and uh, other things who didn't respond to treatment. And if you're pretty sure you've got nothing else and you then put them through a CSF drainage test and they respond, well, then think about surgery. And if they don't, then you can go for a a longer period of drainage to see if they respond. Uh, And then obviously you get uh, a significantly smaller number of patients who are exposed to the non-trivial risk of shunting because obviously they're elderly patients and uh, the complications are there. So I, I think it's a really nice reframing of the issue of what's actually not an uncommon situation. Yeah, and, and I, I do like the, I'm holding it up now for you, the, the picture, the the, uh, the figure two with the various scans and the way to make up this uh, RAD score, the, the radiological um, suspicion of normal pressure hydrocephalus. He also thankfully spells out in detail really how to do one of these tap tests and, uh, uh, you know, 40 mils of CSF with a, a timed walk uh, supervised and in triplicate before and then four hours afterwards. I mean, it, it is quite a commitment to do this. And if you, you know, you would only want to put the patient through this if you're pretty sure that you you had someone who was likely to respond. But you know, I, I do I do like the paper, and I think it's needed. It's needed to address this issue of such a common problem. It cries out probably for a joint clinic, uh, you know, along the lines that uh, are building for IIH and so forth, where different specialties, neurosurgery and neurology in particular, and psychology possibly as well, uh, need to get together and decide really on an MDT basis, which uh, uh, patients are likely to be benefiting by, by taking forward with this. So uh, a, a good paper. And uh, no, I'm pleased that we've got this, pleased we've got a bit of clarity at last on how best to approach and manage this, this type of case. So the next paper um, we're going to explore is looking at another actually relatively common situation, which is obviously stroke, but actually the uncommon causes. And Phil, I think you've been looking at this paper for us. Yeah, well, I I love this paper. This this is um, from uh, David Waring's group again, uh, one of a series of papers on stroke. And uh, this is about the rare causes of stroke, the the 4% of strokes where there is something unusual going on. Of course, the vast majority of strokes are cardioembolic or uh, 
atherothromboembolic or sometimes small vessel disease, a proportion remain cryptogenic. And of those, this tiny percentage have some really important but rare causes. Not the sole province of young people, although they are overrepresented in this group, but older people can have rare causes for their stroke. And really important that they're diagnosed because the treatments can be sometimes very specific and the withholding of certain treatments can be life-saving. So and a good example in this is of infective endocarditis, where clearly the, the treatment is uh, antibiotics and, uh, and that thrombolysis can be very, very dangerous, leading to hemorrhage. So that's a very good example of why we need to get this diagnosis right. The thing I like about it is the emphasis on the clinical skills again. It is about history and examination much more than about a lot of elaborate tests, though they may come later in the context of an MDT. And these authors highlight the importance of certain bits of the history. Of course, you know, does it happen when your neck was being manipulated? Did it happen during a Valsalva or something for PFO? But the more important things that the ones they highlight are headache at the onset and seizures at the onset. Those are real red flags for a uh, an unusual cause, because we know that headache in a stroke could mean hemorrhage or dissection or uh, vasculitis, but um, they also raise the possibility of uh, uh, infarcts involving the posterior fossa, often painful, and reversible cerebral vasoconstriction syndrome, which uh, can be provoked by a number of things. So, uh, and And the other thing I think is seizures at the onset as well, uh, which, of course, only about 5% of strokes would be expected to have that, but it's a real marker that something else may be causing it and not a, uh, a an infarct. So uh, we would think of um, venous, sign, venous occlusion of uh, perhaps encephalitis mimicking a stroke and so forth. So emphasis on the history, really important. Emphasis on the examination. And again, uh, whilst the neurological examination is important for documenting the stroke itself, the underlying causes of it are in the cardiovascular system, are in the, the mucous membranes, the skin, the eyes, the ears, etc. And so a beautiful table, actually, beautiful table two in here outlines some of the uh, some of these features. So it's it's an important paper, one that um, uh, we all need to read because it is really where the skill and experience of a neurologist will really come to bear on the best management of a stroke. And uh, you know, I, I think that this is a really helpful contribution. And I think another example of uncertainty, because the uncertainty here is the uncertainty you need to keep in your own diagnostic thinking to allow you to realise that things may not be a straightforward uh, embolic or thrombotic event. Yeah, so uh, again, I mean, later on in the investigation, it is down to MDTs again. I mean, we keep returning to this in our podcast, how important it is to work with other specialties and to make decisions jointly and jointly with the patient as well, where uh, where we're talking about invasive investigations and uh, uh, potentially harmful treatments and so forth. So again, the, the value of an MDT for these uh, rarer causes is important. We're going to move on to this um, paper about um, MS and the use of anti-CD20 therapies in pregnancy and breastfeeding. Uh, it's by Ruth Dobson and colleagues um, from uh, London. And um, these are actually the outcome of consensus ABN guidelines. So, um, Garant, you've been having a look at this one. 
So, uh, I mean, uh, the anti-CD20 therapies are actually broader than just for MS. Uh, I mean, at the moment, there are uh, four uh, agents. I mean, rituximab is obviously the one we're very familiar with. Uh, Ocrelizumab is becoming much more widely used. And, and then there's a relatively newer one, which is Ofatumamab, which uh, uh, is obviously something we know rather less about. I think the interesting and the uncertainty here is to consider what risks women considering pregnancy and uh, breastfeeding will be exposed to, and, and obviously what risks the baby will be uh, exposed to if these drugs are continued uh, through pregnancy. And, and clearly, the uncertainty here is that actually we don't collect this data as part of the trial data that actually leads to the licensing of the drugs. So we've got disorders which preferentially affect young women who uh, obviously are the group who fall pregnant and have breastfeeding, and yet a very significant set of risks are not formally assessed. And uh, I think what Ruth and uh, the consensus guidelines here is to, to try to glean what information we can, and they've got the information from registries, registries obviously not just for the, these neurological diseases, but they're also used in other um, hematological and oncological disorders, to try and see if you can work out what kind of risks there are, and then to try and translate that uh, estimations of risks in, into the best available advice. And I think that they've actually ended up concluding that the background risks are not as dramatic as feared. Uh, they make the observation that uh, the half-life of these drugs is actually quite long. The effect they uh, maintain is quite long. So you can potentially have a gap, which uh, may allow the um, patient to have the, uh, the woman to have a pregnancy without too much of a problem. Uh, they make the observation that the placenta only starts transferring IgG1, which is the, the relevant uh, antibody here in the second trimester. So, you know, you've got a slightly longer window. Um, and the, the risks, once the pregnancy is underway, do seem to be rather less for the baby than anticipated. So there's some reports of uh, low cell counts when they come to, but for the most part, it's not particularly troublesome. Now, clearly the problem is that this is uncertain data. And I think one of the key messages I took from this paper, aside from the specific recommendations that were based on the best evidence that we have, is the, the incredibly important role that registries play in this group of patients, because clearly everything's going to be generated after the licensing. Uh, no, no drug is going to be licensed in, um, or we're going to have appropriate data collected before it's licensed. And they give a, a link to the registries involved in, in these studies. And I think the key thing is to get uh, all the patients who, who fall into this category onto a registry so we can get better information for the future. They talk about um, other sensible things. So if you have been on these medications, uh, when the baby, for example, should be exposed to live vaccines, um, uh, what you should do about breastfeeding and so on. And, and I think rather than spelling out their recommendations, which I think they lay out in a very clearly, clear, straightforward way, I think it's probably best to just point those people having these discussions to the paper so they can try and give the you know, women the best information uh, in advance of um, pregnancy to to try and move forward. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, pregnancy very prominent in people's minds at the moment with the issues around valparate and intellectual impairment and so forth. And, and this is 
really a very welcome paper because, as you've said, these these are a group of people, young women who are, and particularly in pregnancy, who are not um, the subjects of trials. I mean, we're not going to get randomised controlled trials of new drugs in human pregnancies, and uh, therefore the only way to get this information is with the registries. And yeah, very, very important that um, women are encouraged to register their, their pregnancy and you know, may, maybe there should be a bit, bit more pressure from neurologists to, to help them to do that. It's uh, one, one of the great joys of editing practical neurology is that we do get to read papers that are perhaps not in my specialist field and uh, perhaps normally with MS being so subdivided within neurology now, many neurologists might think, well, this isn't for me. But of course, it is for them because this uh, applies to uh, drugs like rituximab. It applies to conditions like myasthenia and autoimmune encephalitis and uh, NMO and so forth. So this is a much broader field than just with with MS. And uh, I also took reassurance, I think, from their consensus guidelines. The, the evidence seems to be that um, certainly breastfeeding is low risk and that uh, in pregnancy, uh, these drugs appear to be uh, of um, low risk and that uh, a few sensible precautions such as the avoidance of live vaccines in the first six months uh, of an infant being exposed to this because there is going to be some effect on their immunity. It does cause transient B-cell depletion in the neonate, but hopefully and expectantly no further harm beyond that. But but I think the key thing is to recognise the uncertainty here and that these are provisional guidelines because clearly this is going to take longer-term follow-up. There's all kinds of things that we don't know as yet. Um, and one only has to look back at the, the Valproate that you mentioned as to see quite how long the follow-up needs to be to be really happy that you're not uh, hiding some other problem in the future. Absolutely, because the, the, the registries rely on voluntary registration and uh, it takes years and years, doesn't it, to build up that information from monotherapy pregnancies. And, uh, you know, and only then can we look back and say, yes, it is or is not safe. And exactly how safe is going to be many years before we can be confident of that. And we then move on to another relatively common problem, which, again, rather like the stroke issue, um, occasionally can be a marker for something which is actually much rarer. Yes. So I think you're talking about cramps. I'm talking about cramps, Garrett. So this is a paper uh, from Nijmegen um, and also from uh, Oxford, London and Swansea. Muscle cramps and contractures, causes and treatment. So as you say, this is a universal experience, surely, is cramps. The authors say 37% of us have cramps. I would wager it's a little bit more than that. And because it's such a common, almost universal experience, it makes it really quite hard to write because we need to know what are the features that make it benign cramps, what is the differential diagnosis of those cramps, and what could be the underlying serious conditions that uh, having cramps might um, point to. So the authors start by going through the difference between a cramp and a contracture. 
And I think that is quite helpful. So, um, of course, a contracture is myogenic, the sort of thing one gets in metabolic myopathy, such as McArdle's disease, an electrically silent muscle shortening, failure to relax, etc. And they tell us that there are three types of cramps, the physiological exercise-induced ones that perhaps we're very familiar with personally and uh, maybe in our patients. They're so-called idiopathic, mainly nocturnal ones, which are particularly common in the elderly. And then the reason for the paper, probably, the symptomatic ones, the ones where there might be an underlying condition or exogenous factor causing it. And they stress very sensibly only a minority, only a tiny minority have underlying neuromuscular disease. So it'd be quite easy, I think, to have frightened specialists into thinking that uh, cramps are something to be pointing to underlying serious illness. They've been very careful about um, making sure that we understand it's only those with atypical features. Uh, There's a broad differential diagnosis of cramps, but And I'm surprised to see things like dystonia amongst that long list, but dystonia, myotonia, myokymia, restless legs, periodic movements, spasticity and stiff person syndrome are all in that list. Great table, actually, in in the paper. And uh, really, the, the red flag symptoms of a cramp uh, if we hear about there's a sort of second wind phenomenon indicating McArdle, if they are de novo cramps starting in middle age, that's a bit worrying. But if they are widespread, and particularly if they're not confined to the calves and feet, then that might ring a bit of an alarm bell as well. So um, we would then be thinking about, could it be the rarer conditions like anterior horn cell disease and uh, nerve root problems and Morvan syndrome, cramp fasciculation syndrome, etc.? A word on the management. I mean, most people with cramps, of course, don't need specific intervention here. But uh, I I was helped by knowing that just uh, reducing caffeine, reducing alcohol maybe helps, correcting any electrolyte disturbance or deficiency, thinking about whether certain medications might have brought it on and maybe withdrawing medications uh, and uh, stopping smoking. All of those things are useful tips on managing what is usually an incredibly benign and innocent symptom. So I think, I mean, a very useful paper, really to just, uh, to allow you to check your thinking. Uh, You know, most of us would very comfortably write the cramps off, but actually occasionally they'll throw up something. And I think the other side of the coin, we'll often see patients with an established diagnosis, uh, MND, for example where cramps can be a very disabling and troublesome symptom. And this gives you a wider range of treatments than perhaps you might have considered previously. Now we move on to uh, treatment of CIDP, which is uh, a well-known acronym in neurology. This is a paper from uh, Simon Rinaldi's group, Cambridge and Oxford. And uh, so, Garant, you've been having a good look at this paper. So, yes, this is a how-to-do-it paper. And I think, again, it, 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 we were talking about the theme of uncertainty. And here the uncertainty is that we really don't know what is best. Um, I mean, CIDP is uh, quite you know, relatively common for, uh, for uncommon diseases, but also quite heterogeneous. So clinically, it's quite tricky to diagnose. And they start off in this paper really discussing the difficulties in making that diagnosis. It appears in a classical form as a sort of slow-moving uh, Guillain-Barré type presentation uh, when it can be relatively symmetrical and uh, seemingly the diagnosis is straightforward. But um, just to make things difficult, it can be multifocal, 
which can be much more difficult to diagnose. Uh, and it can obviously have uh, different time courses. So you can get a relapsing form uh, rather than just a, a progressive form. And when you are trying to make the diagnosis, clearly you need to avoid any of the sort of clinical traps that if there are other system or involvement, you might be uh, missing vasculitis. But very often the, the problem is that there's no clear-cut diagnostic test. You've got uh, the clinical syndrome, you've got neurophysiological changes which um, aren't specific and they uh, recommend that sometimes you have to go back and revisit those, doing slightly more extensive uh, neurophysiology to, to try and find evidence of demyelination. Um, the CSF can be helpful but is again not specific. Uh, you can do various blood tests to eliminate alternatives um, and I think they highlight the, the need to look at um, for paraproteins and the, the IgM Paraprotein be a substantial red flag that it's something else uh, related to the anti-mag uh, neuropathies. And I think actually one of the references they give, which is the uh, mimics and chameleons of CIDP, which we published, I think, four or five years ago, uh, they, they refer to, and I, I would thoroughly recommend revisiting to try and clarify the diagnosis. But clearly, you know, you have to try and make a diagnosis. And then the question you're faced with is, well, what do you do? And, and broadly speaking, there are three main treatments. Um, there's, uh, there's steroids immunoglobulins, and uh, plasma exchange. And the trial data behind these is not great. The strongest data is for uh, IVIG, but um, this is still involving relatively small numbers of patients. Uh, for the most part, the patients who had it had fewer other problems. And obviously, we're seeing many patients with more comorbidities. And I think the risks of IVIG, which I thought were very um, clearly explored, are perhaps slightly more than we might think, particularly the risks of thrombosis, uh, and they produce a very nice, a very nice table. So you can try and think through the risks of that. And then you've got the question of, is of which of those things to use, uh, and there are different, significant different problems with using them. So steroids, obviously, are relatively straightforward, but come with relatively more everyday side effects. IVIG is relatively inconvenient. Uh, coming with a great set of risks we've talked about. And plasma exchange is obviously much more difficult to get and requires access to various machinery and so on. So we've got three different, really different, quite radically different modalities of treatment. And in fact, within the steroids, you've got um, three or four different regimes, just ordinary everyday uh, steroids, prednisolone, uh, pulses of dexamethasone, pulses of methylprednisolone using different regimes. And all of these have some justification. Really, the, the frustration is that we don't have a clear steer as to which is best. Now, fortunately, um, a substantial proportion of these patients respond um, well, and, and they make, I think, a very good point that you want to treat the patient who has been deteriorating, and their recovery may lead them to a plateau where they're stable, but not back to normal. And clearly, you don't want to over-treat people in that situation where potentially you're giving them the risks of the treatment without necessarily any benefit of further recovery. Obviously, they may not respond, and part of the failure to respond may be that it's just that you need to try a different modality, but equally, it makes you have to think about an alternative diagnosis. And they say a substantial proportion of patients, you, you know, you do find that there's an alternative. Genetic, so uh, hereditary liability to pressure palsies, for example, or uh, one or two of the other rarer CMT variants can sometimes catch you out. And uh, we'll come back to a, another relatively rare, uh, very important um, alternative diagnosis in one of the other papers we'll discuss. If those three things haven't worked, 
then there are a range of alternatives to use. The data for which is even more th- shaky, um, you know, azathioprine, um, mycophenolate, an assortment of other things, right the way up to rituximab and possibly even bone marrow transplantation. So there's a huge spectrum um, of, of, that you could consider using. But again, uh, without a, a firm basis. So I thought it was a very nice exploration of what's quite a tricky field, but really, once again, sharing the uncertainty um, in a very clear kind of way. Yeah, and it sort of comes hot on the heels of the European Academy of Neurology guidelines, uh, Peripheral Nerve Society 21-2021 guidelines, which, uh, so I think this is smack up to date. And uh, as you say, I think neurologists think they know quite a lot about CIDP because we see a lot of it and uh, manage most of it, I think, with uh, IVIG. But I, I was slightly surprised by the uncertainty around those three treatments. I mean, they're all expensive, well, steroids not expensive, but plasma exchange and uh, IVIG, very expensive and potentially risky. And as you mentioned, the, the risk of venous thrombosis, they talk about the number needed to harm with IVIG is 5.8. So a substantial risk of uh, leading to, to DVT with those treatments. But IVIG is the one that's got the strongest evidence with seven RCTs and 235 patients, I think, uh, behind it. So it, it's an area that's still perhaps evolving in terms of the, the best treatments. And uh, so much of it is clinical again and sorting out whether it really is CIDP, whether it's uh, or one of these many differential diagnoses of this condition. But I think for what's not a very rare disease, it is still small numbers in a trial. And whilst the evidence supporting IVIG is the clearest, it doesn't necessarily indicate that it's the best because that hasn't been the question that's been asked in the trials. So should we, should we talk about this next paper, which is uh, highly relevant to what we've just been talking about? It's, it's entitled Leprosy Rash Precipitated by Immunotherapy for Suspected Inflammatory Neuropathy. This is from New Zealand, and uh, yeah, well, it comes with a with a, a picture of of the rash. But Garant, you've been uh, looking at this in particularly in relation to the CIDP paper. Well, exactly, and I think this is a very nice example of exactly what we're talking about. So this was a patient who very reasonably was thought to have uh, the multifocal version of uh, CIDP, and uh, you know they did the appropriate investigations. They didn't seem to find anything else, so they very reasonably put them on immunosuppression initially with steroids and subsequently with IVIG, and they didn't seem to get better. And indeed, what's worse, they then got a dramatic rash when they were given IVIG, uh, which they thought, well, is this a reaction to the IVIG? And at that stage, you have a skin biopsy, and you're able to prove that actually the patient has leprosy. Now, apparently, there are only four patients a year in New Zealand who have leprosy. And so, you know, we're dealing with a rare disease, and yet one which has a radically different treatment. And obviously, the immunosuppression undoubtedly contributed to the revelation of uh, a substantial systemic upset with the skin and nerve involvement. And I think it's really to the, their credit that they, they've told us this story because uh, we've learned from what they've learned from. And uh, the idea that you've got a very difficult patient who's not behaved as you would expect. And uh, you know, always remember Hansen's disease. I mean, you know, it's a, it's a, a disease which in the West is so rare that actually it almost invariably will catch you out. Patients will rarely come along and say, oh, look, I've had this rash. I've been exposed, et cetera, et cetera. Normally, yeah, it's going to come out of the blue. 
the, the, the great mimic. But as you say, I mean, we, we, we love uh, having people talk about their mistakes or oversights or errors. I mean, this, this is such a, uh, you know, it's, it's a clever mistake, really. I mean, four cases a year, you would not expect to, to come across one, you know, a case of leprosy. And, uh, and I think that, as you say, th this has been a, a great bit of learning. And we would really encourage other papers like this that uh, help us to learn from when things don't go smoothly in clinical practice. So uh, all credit to the team. Yeah, though, though I think, the, the, in a way, turning that background, if they'd started off with a diagnosis, we think this is leprosy, they would have been wrong more frequently than if they did what they did. Absolutely. Very good. Yeah, so we've got another situation where we can get things wrong, I think. And this is the physical examination of functional unresponsiveness. So this is uh, Stephen Batchy and Mark Slee. This is, they're from Adelaide um, in Australia. This is a paper that looks at people with functional unresponsiveness and the best way to assess them clinically. So Traditionally, I suppose we would try to open their eyes and see the eyes uh, looking away and averting their gaze, etc. We, we might be tempted to put cold water in their ear and this sort of thing. That will certainly wake people up. But I think that what the, the authors here are trying to do is to ensure that we use tests which um, are respectful to the patient and uh, treat them um, as, as issues that need to be resolved and need to be treated. And that um, so they have identified a few tests which they feel are going to be useful in this situation. One of them is the so-called Harvey's first sign. So I think Peter Harvey suggested putting a tuning fork into the nostrils. However, I think it has to be a particularly fine end of the tuning fork. Mine doesn't really work for this um, to, to make it work. You, you f maybe fi need to find other ways like tickling the nose hairs or tickling the vermilion border of the, of the lips. And then the other test I learned from this was that if you turn your patient to one side, someone with functional unresponsiveness, their eyes will often look towards the floor. And then you turn them to the other side and the eyes will then again, look to the floor in the other direction. And that, that can be helpful. I mean, what, what I felt about the paper was that it um, perhaps did not help in the sense of the trick or treat type uh, scenario that John Stone introduced us to. The idea that one identifies these signs not to trick someone, not to just diagnose functional, but to use it as a way of helping them understand what is happening to them in the way that he would use Hoover's sign. I suppose it's perhaps not quite so possible in someone who's um, got functional unresponsiveness to, to say, but I suppose the words that you use when you're eliciting these signs might help people later on. We, I think they do stress you, we need to be careful of the words we use with people in functional unresponsiveness who will recall those and uh, may be distressed if they are inappropriate words. So um, perhaps using helpful words to illustrate what is happening and that might eventually help people to um, understand their situation. So uh, what, what were your thoughts on this paper, Garrett? I mean, I think this is highlighting another area of uncertainty. So, you know, um, broadly speaking, what you're aiming to try and do is demonstrate physical signs which are not commensurate 
with an organic explanation for the unconsciousness. And I think you, you, the rolling over sign, for example, is a very good example of that. You're, just, you're not demonstrating or finding the, the correlates you would expect in someone who had an organic form of unconsciousness. So it, it's helpful and informative, and I think you're right that we haven't got a, a, an equivalent of a Hoover sign, but I think it's also just almost reframing the question that actually you're trying to positively look for functional unconsciousness rather than um, merely assessing uh, you know so the response to pain in a in a very straightforward way as one would in uh, assessing someone with unconsciousness uh, and trying to determine a Glasgow coma scale and so on so so you're trying to add nuance to the, the examination and and I'm sure that this is going to be something that'll evolve. I mean, people will find, you know, try these different things. Hopefully, we'll get some more clear-cut evidence attached to that. Um, but I, I, no, I thought I thought it was a, a useful contribution, though. I, I think the whole area is it remains a work in progress. I mean, you have to look where we were, say, ten or fifteen years ago, uh, in trying to assess patients with functional disease. It, it was much more simplistic. So I, I think this is is a good thing. And have you got Harvey's sign to work? Have you tried that one ever? So interestingly, I've not seen someone with functional unconsciousness un after receiving this paper. So I look forward to trying it. Right, okay. Then our last paper, you know, in many ways our best paper. This is just something I've been waiting for for a long time. It's the morning report from Marty Samuels. And uh, this sort of brings back very happy memories for me from my sabbatical at the Women's in Brigham Hospital in Boston back in 2013, where the main feature of the day, 7.30 in the morning, was the morning report, where it is the residents who've incidentally been up since about 5.30 uh, on the ward round, bringing fresh cases along at 7.30 to a crowded room chaired by Marty Samuels. And uh, these are not cases which are already fully worked up and got a complete answer. They are hot cases where people want to have the senior clinician's opinion. And maybe this is something that wouldn't necessarily reproduce in, in, uh, in every setting. But uh, uh, Marty is suggesting that uh, when we have a morning report, if there is one, it should be early in the morning. It should be frequent daily, he says. Uh, it should be brief, sort of half an hour or so. Relaxed but rigorous, so you're allowed bagels, etc. But uh, it's not for everyone to be in any way um, lighthearted about it. Everyone is engaged. The person who saw the patient is the one who presents. The senior clinician leads it, and the senior clinician comes to an opinion, an opinion which they are very happy to be found to be incorrect on, because that is the nature of clinical neurology. And uh, now Marty has been doing this for years, and he, he's it's evolved into something which is very, very special. And at the end of it, he emails a brief notes about the case but then his personal thoughts and usually there are 10 or so really beautiful thoughts which are based around this scenario and built upon his long experience so um and I, I think his personal reflections on these are, are really good so um morning report how to do it I, you know is this something that that could work in gloucester do you think well, so, so I mean, I, th I thought it was very interesting, and I think you know the first observation is that clearly this isn't something that could be replicated in the form that Marty describes across most parts of the country. Uh, the idea of having everyone doing a, a, one of these every day is going to be very difficult to achieve elsewhere. 
However, I, I think the concept of discussing live cases through an, with an experienced person is one way that we can help trainees learn how to manage uncertainty. Because in many respects, that's what is, is being achieved here. That process of thinking, uh, how to deal with the best, inf- uh, do as well as you can with the information that you have and to come up with the best solution, and indeed then how to interrogate it further with the literature is exactly uh, what's done. So at Gloucester, we have a a weekly, we don't achieve it every uh, day, but we have a weekly uh, meeting where we discuss uh, the difficult patients on the ward uh, with a group of consultants, and uh, we we try and achieve something that's within this, which hopefully our trainees find helpful. And and I'm sure you can reshape it depending on your own circumstances. What about Cardiff, Phil? Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, we, we, when, when I came back from Boston, we started a meeting at half past eight in the morning. Uh, we couldn't quite achieve half seven, but it was more of a sort of meeting and a get, bit of a get together. It wasn't really quite about the hot cases and uh, it, it hasn't really been able to be sustained. I, I think it takes someone with enormous energy, certainly to produce the summaries at the end of the meeting. And uh, Marty has that. But uh, it's a very, very big department and, and the uh, everyone is highly engaged and um, wanting to get every bit of teaching available. So it works really, really well there and is, is the centrepiece of the day. I think we, as you say, we can draw lessons from it about how we might run our own meetings. And there definitely is something about having live cases where it's not just about presenting another case of Whipple's disease or whatever, where it's already worked up. This is about people with symptoms that are that are grey and uncertain, and we want to hear the expert and their view as well as the views of, of everyone else. So. I mean, another tradition they have in Boston is the Chief's Round, which is the same sort of thing where the lead clinician, the professor, will be presented with a case uh, on anything, just neurology, and they will uh, dissect it. They will, well, they will take the history and uh, examine the patient and then give uh, their views of, of, the, uh, of the likely diagnosis and management and so forth. Really highly informative. So great ways of learning, but um, a tradition that hasn't been wholly adopted in the UK as yet. But I would be hopeful that um, if the senior clinician has been reading practical neurology regularly, they should find any of such cases straightforward, or at least we aim to make it so. Absolutely. Practical neurology will substitute for for many a morning report. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for for listening to the Practical Neurology Editors podcast, a brief chat between uh, the two editors, Garrett Fuller, Phil Smith. And um, we do have another regular podcast. Uh, Amy Ross Russell talks to the author of the uh, Editor's Choice paper each issue. And you can subscribe to these on any of your favourite platforms. And we'd also like to hear from you as well about your comments on the podcast, comments on the the journal in general. And uh, so thank you very much from me. And thank you from me.